Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. If you're newer with us, we've been in the fall months doing a series called On the Road, where we've been listening to many of the journeys people undertake in the scriptures and how God meets them in their own journeys as we think about how God meets us in all the different places of our own lives' stories. Today, and for the next two weeks, as we conclude that series, we're going to attend to the journey that Jesus takes, because all of those different journeys lead to this journey that Jesus takes for us. So today, we're going to consider together the journey that Jesus takes in his final hours up the mountain of olives to the garden of Gethsemane. So today's scripture reading is going to be from Luke chapter 22. I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to listen to the scriptures and then we'll listen to God's word together. So pray with me if you would. Guide us, O God, by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, And in your will, discover peace. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, listen to the book that we love from Luke 22. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel of the Lord appeared from heaven to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. As he was speaking, suddenly a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they said, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said, to the elders, the officers of the temple police, and the chief priests who had come for him. Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? You did not lay hands on me when I taught in the temple among you day after day. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever I reflect on this story... I'm struck by the contrast between Jesus here 
and many of the other famous stories of death that we inherit from the, the famous people of the ancient world. If you read the stories of ancient Greek and Roman philosophers or military leaders, they're always depicted as going to their end with ice in their veins. There's the Greek philosopher Socrates, for example. He was, he was condemned to be executed by drinking hemlock. And if you read the story of his death, he's pictured as drinking the hemlock while he's coolly offering one-liners to his followers and students. We have the stories of a number of Jewish revolutionaries in the books of First and Second Maccabees. And they depict... They depict Jewish people who led violent revolutions as these, patriotic, as these patriotic revolutionaries who would go to their deaths praising God while they were being skewered to pieces by their enemies. In the modern world, we, we tend to be attracted to stories of, of irony or bravado in the face of death. So think about any war movie that you've ever watched, for example. Or there's the, there's the author and playwright Oscar Wilde, and when he was in his final hours, he was in a room with some of his friends and looked around at the curtains and said, these curtains have got to go or I will, and then just died. Or think about you know, Tony Montana and Scarface, you know, binged up on cocaine, telling people about it, you know, to come and meet my little friend as he goes out in a blaze of violence in his final moments. So it's jarring then to see Jesus here bent low and hunched and quivering in terror in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has made a long, knowing journey toward this moment. If you later on today go home and read the story of Jesus in the book of Luke as a whole, two-thirds of the book of Luke, the middle two-thirds of it, is dedicated to Jesus' final journey towards Jerusalem. And Jesus is calm, clear-eyed, he's resolute, and Luke 9, as Luke begins telling us of that portion of Jesus' story, he says that Jesus sets his face to go to the journey of Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem. Along the way, on a number of occasions, he teaches and warns his followers about his looming death and what it'll mean. Jesus does all this calmly. He's in complete control. But here, here something is different. A few hours before Jesus is hung up on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem in agony, he's here up the steep slope of the Mount of Olives outside the city limits, hunched over in agony in the Gethsemane Garden. Part of what we realize when we take this all in is that those two agonies are the same agony. Luke tells us that Jesus here prays in anguish. That word, anguish, in the original language that this part of the Bible was written in is the Greek word agonia. And it's the word that we get agony from. This scene in the story of Jesus' life is traditionally referred to as the agony in the garden. But it refers to both agony or anguish or anxiety and also to the sweat and struggle of an athlete in a contest or a soldier at war. And I think that's actually the sense in which Luke tells us that Jesus bent over in the garden is in agonia. 
Jesus here is beginning the contest of the ages. He here begins what he refers to as the time of trial. He's headed towards what one 20th century theologian named Karl Barth calls the collision of the eons. This moment where he would win the ultimate victory in the world by suffering what seems the ultimate defeat. This moment where he would overcome the diabolical opposition of sin and death, heartbreak and the evil one to the good world that God made by drinking down all of that heartbreak and darkness and death to its dregs and absorbing it into himself. That's what Jesus is describing as he prays to the Father that the cup might be taken from him. The cup that Jesus holds in his hands that night is God's determination to rescue the world that he loves through an act of suffering love. There's a a late author, Presbyterian minister named Eugene Peterson that in one of his writings talks about this moment. This is how he talks about that cup that Jesus holds in his hands, so to speak. He says, the cup that Jesus drinks is a sacrificial death in which Jesus freely takes sin and evil into himself, absorbs it in his own soul, and makes salvation out of it, drinks it down as if from a cup. Jesus' name is translated into English, Yahweh saves. As Jesus drinks the cup, he becomes his name. Just a few hours beforehand, Jesus had shared a final meal with a few close followers down in the city. And as they shared a Passover meal with its rhythm of prayers, courses, and cups of wine, Jesus, with wine on his breath and crumbs in his beard, would lift a glass of wine to his followers and say, this cup is the new covenant that God's going to make with you through my shed blood. Jesus knows the only way that his first followers and millennia later, we, his followers, and the whole world will get to drink the cup of God's forgiveness and love would be for Jesus to drink the cup of our heartbreak and darkness and death. There's a moment that depicts this in in stark fashion in the Harry Potter books. Many of you have likely read those stories growing up. I'll also say, as a public service announcement, if you're a parent who has a kid in the middle of reading those stories right now, put earmuffs on them because I'm about to totally ruin them. I accidentally did this to my own children last Easter. I shared the ending of The Lord of the Rings when we were two chapters from the end of The Lord of the Rings. And they were like, Dad, come on. What have you done to us? So here's the public service announcement. If you've read those stories in the, in the, final, of the, in the final of the Harry Potter books, Harry Potter is this, who's this wizard who's something also of a, of, a, of a chosen or messianic kind of figure. He's battling Voldemort, who's this who's this evil wizard who's a personification of darkness and evil. And there's a, there's a moment near the end of the final book in which Harry has the realization that the only way in which he can win in doing battle against Voldemort is to willingly be killed by Voldemort himself, to willingly give his life. And so he goes, in an echo, intentional or not, of, of this story, into a garden in the woods to face down Voldemort, knowing that the only way 
that he can win victory over the evil one is by being willingly struck down by the evil he's fighting. This is the, this is the terrible truth that Jesus knows in the garden. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to actually visit this place, to visit the Mount of Olives. And I remember as I, as I hiked the steep slope up from the city of Jerusalem and stood in an olive orchard on the hillside looking down on the city, I was, I was struck deeply as I reflected on this moment in Jesus' life by how the Christian story addresses our, our heartbreak and anguish in a way that nothing and no one else ever has. Think about it. If, if you live your life according to the, the modern Western story of the world, your anguish and heartbreak, these things, are, these things are ultimately meaningless. They're nothing more than biochemical and neurological reactions in your brain and your nervous system. That's it. Other kinds of traditions and spiritualities say that Either suffering is an illusion to be overcome, or perhaps that God feels compassion for the suffering of the world. But only the Christian story goes this far. Only the Christian story dares to say that the almighty God of the universe came all the way in and all the way down to human experience so that he would feel anguish and pain and know it from the inside. Only the Christian story dares to say that the living God actually came into human experience so as to taste our frailty and pain himself. Only the Christian story says that the living God would rescue us from death by being willing to be swallowed up in death himself. Only the story of Jesus in the garden claims that you and I can have ultimate hope in our anguish and suffering in our own Gethsemanes because God has actually tasted anguish and suffering himself. This is what the book of Hebrews in the New Testament means when it says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Only the Christian story says that the living God of the universe knows what it's like to pray with loud cries and tears in your most desperate moment. This prayer... It's one of, of only six prayers that we have in the Gospels in which we actually have recorded for ourselves the words of Jesus himself as he prays to his beloved Father. The very first prayer whose words we have recorded is the, is the one that we often call the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. Even if you're not super familiar with Christianity, you've likely heard it somewhere or another before. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. Three years after teaching his disciples that prayer, Jesus here in his own prayer, he takes up the, he takes up the petition that finishes both halves of the prayer. For God's will to be done 
and for deliverance from the time of trial. Jesus here is filling out and completing the praying that he began his public life teaching his disciples. Jesus here will go on to be the way that God would answer that prayer once and for all, for us, forever. In other words, Jesus would pray these words and then he would be the answer to them for us. Jesus would be plunged into the time of trial, into the depths of darkness and wrong and death, so that you and I, when we come to God in our own times of trial, can always know that God is with us and hears us. So I want to simply close this morning by inviting you to do what that hymn that we sang together a few moments ago tells us to do, to go with Jesus to dark Gethsemane. First, I think, in, I think in this journey that Jesus takes, we have an invitation to learn from Jesus Gethsemane praying. As we eavesdrop on this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, we hear in Jesus' words both honesty and trust all at the same time. And this is what the gospel gives us as we approach God as followers of Jesus. There's honesty in Jesus' And Jesus wavering words here, let this cup pass from me. Think about, what, think about what different cultures tell you to do with your anguish and your suffering. Traditional cultures tend to tell you that you, they ought to ignore it. They ought to take it, on the, take it on the chin with a stiff upper lip. On the other hand, you know, the, the, modern, the modern Western culture that we all live in says, you know, distract yourself from your anguish and pain. Medicate it. Netflix it away. But the gospel, doesn't, the gospel doesn't tell you either to, either to ignore your pain or to self-medicate in your pain. It invites you to pray your pain. Jesus leads us into praying honestly to God, voicing the most painful and ugly parts of our lives to God, knowing that he hears and cares. So there's honesty here and also trust at the same time. Jesus finishes his praying in resolved fashion saying to the Father, your will be done. You see, because of Jesus and the journey that he takes through death and then out the other side into resurrection, you and I can be sure that when we come to God in our own Gethsemanes, that God is there, that God cares, and that God is at work, even if we don't in that moment know how exactly. So this story, it invites us to follow Jesus into Gethsemane praying. I also want to observe in closing that this story invites us to take a Gethsemane posture, to follow Jesus into a Gethsemane posture in the time and place that we all live in. There's a leading biblical scholar named N.T. Wright who, in his writings about this moment in Jesus' story, says that the church has often found it hard to stay with Jesus in Gethsemane. And he compares the posture of Jesus here in Gethsemane with the various other Jewish movements of Jesus' day and how they related to the the Roman Empire that was a hostile place for them. And so on the one hand, N.T. Wright writes about the, about the zealots. These were people that they had imagined that there would be a Messiah, a chosen one, who would lead them in military revolt, that would take up the sword against the, against the oppressive Romans. 
This is what people want Jesus to do in this moment. But he refuses. They wanted to, they wanted to take the way of, of cultural power, takeover. Jesus refuses that way. On the other hand, there's another movement that was contemporary with Jesus and his followers called the Essenes. And these were people that responded to the heartbreak and oppression and pain that Jewish people knew in the first century by simply trying to get away from the Roman Empire, build the walls in their own little enclaves, say their prayers, and ignore the rest of the world. But Jesus doesn't take either of those paths. What does Jesus do in taking the Gethsemane path? He chooses to be a prayer where the world is in pain. And he chooses the way of suffering service. And I think that there's wisdom there for us as we think about the time and place that we inhabit, here and now. As followers of Jesus, we're, we're called not to, not to cultural takeover, culture wars, taking up the sword, so to speak. And we're not called to simply, to simply build the walls and keep all that's dark and wicked and bad in the world at bay while we say our prayers and keep to ourselves. We're called to be at prayer where the world is in pain. And we're called to the way of self-giving service. This is why we wanted to invite many of our local partners here today so that you could get more familiar and more connected with many of the people that we seek to serve our neighbors together with all around the, all around the county here. Because we want to take the Gethsemane posture. We want to take the posture of self-giving service. I'm struck as I, as I reflect on this story in the echo between this garden story and the garden story that opens the story of scripture itself. We began the series actually looking at that story. In the Eden garden, in the book of Genesis, humankind turns our backs on God and in so doing, death and heartbreak and injustice and violence are let loose in the world. As Leonard Cohen says, there's a, there comes to be a crack in everything. And yet here, Jesus walks into the Gethsemane Garden, knowingly taking the journey into an unjust death to undo and to heal and repair all the wrong that we let loose in the world in the Eden Garden. There's a, there's a song I, I heard a number of years ago by an experimental rock band called Me Without You that lived in my old neighborhood in Philadelphia that pictures this moment in a really beautiful way. And so I'm gonna close by simply sharing with you these lines. They released an album a number of years ago that had a song called A Stick, A Carrot, and A String. And the song, in a really moving and haunting way, it reflects on the beginning moments of Jesus' life and then at the end on this final Gethsemane moment and Jesus' last night of life. I want you to listen to what it says. The song begins this way. Says the horse's hay beneath his head, our Lord was born to a manger bed that all whose wells run dry could drink of his supply. To keep him warm, the sheep drew near, so grateful for his coming here. You come with news of grace, come to take my place. The donkey whispered in his ear, child of 30 some odd years, you'll ride someone who looks like me, untriumphantly. While the cardinals warbled a joyful song, he'll make right what man has made wrong bringing low the hills that the valley might be filled. And the song finishes this way. The night was cool and clear as glass, with the sneaking snake in the garden grass, deep cried out to deep, the disciples were fast asleep. And the snake perked up when he heard you ask, if you're willing that this cup might pass, we could find our way back home, maybe start a family all our own. 
But does not the Father guide the Son? Not my will, but yours be done. What else here to do? What else me, but you? And the snake who'd held the world, a stick, a carrot, and a string, was crushed beneath the foot of you're not wanting anything. Friends, may you follow Jesus in your own Gethsemanes, because he's the one who was willing to give away everything for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.